All right. Well, if y'all will meet me in Acts chapter 17, we're going to hop right in. Acts chapter 17. We're going to start off at verse 16. So just, just a little bit about this book. Um, oh, yeah, by the way. Uh, so in the first service, my, my mic fell off and everyone was trying to get my attention. I didn't know what was going on. And so I preached the whole time without my mic. So if, if my mic uh, falls off, y'all just be like, hey, Cyril, your mic. And we'll, we'll keep rolling. All right. Is that cool? Cool. All right. So um, and actually, the book of Acts is really kind of like a sequel to the book of Luke. And um, in Luke, it talks about how Jesus lived his life and how he taught his disciples and taught people. He died and he rose again and he ascended up into heaven at the right hand of the father. And Acts tells about how he sent out his disciples and the apostles to preach about the resurrection, that he rose again from the dead and that he is Lord and that everyone should turn their lives away from their sinful ways, their rebellious ways and love the Lord. Um, So here we are. We find that Paul is one of the missionaries in the book of Acts and he is in the city of Athens. So um, the main thing we're going to look at today is the resurrection and what that means for it. So as we're approaching Easter, I think this is a particularly relevant thing to look at, the resurrection. And this is the main thing I'm going to drive home today. God raised Jesus from the dead, so repent. God raised Jesus from the dead, so repent. All right, so I'll I'll read the scripture, and uh, I'll pray for us, and we'll go on and hop in. Starting at verse 16 in chapter 17. If you got to say amen. All right. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath in everything, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth having determined allotted periods in the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. 
Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Amen. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time. Lord, we thank you that you love us so much that you have spoken to us. You have given us your word. You have revealed yourself. Lord, I pray that you would help me. Give me strength. I need you desperately. I can't do preaching by my own, on my own. Lord, I need you. Would you help me to make these words plain that you have given us? And Lord, I pray that the hearers under the sound of my voice would receive these words with faith and love, treasure it in their hearts, that they would practice it in their lives. Lord, we love you. Amen. So, what if I told you that heaven isn't the end game of Christianity? That heaven isn't the end game of Christianity. Now, I know a lot of us grew up, uh, you know, whether we saw it on movies or in, uh, we had it in our imagination or we we're even in maybe a Sunday school class that people talked about, man, the reason why we need to repent uh, and turn to Jesus so that we can go to heaven. And yes, there is a place called heaven for us. But what if I told you that heaven was merely just the waiting room? The end game of Christianity is something that the Bible calls the new heavens and the new earth. See, in, in, in heaven, we, are, we don't have our bodies. We're, we're, we're just our souls are in heaven. But God wants us to live on a renovated, renewed times a billion. He wants us to live on this type of earth with new and glorified bodies and with God dwelling in this kind of earth and us worshiping him. The new heavens and the new earth will be a perfect place, a glorified place where we will have new bodies. But see, the thing is, in order for us to have new bodies in this world, we will have to undergo a resurrection. See, the Bible teaches that one day when Jesus comes back, uh, all the dead will rise again and we will stand before the judgment throne of Jesus. And when we stand there, we will be judged. Either we will... Uh, have, our, our works will be made plain and everyone will see that we rejected Jesus and that we rebelled against him and lived our lives thusly and we will undergo eternal condemnation. And other, others of us will be raised to glory, will be openly acknowledged and acquitted before Jesus and we will be received in to worship and live with God forever in a perfect world with perfect bodies. Now you see the resurrection is kind of like this. At Yellowstone Park there's this uh, geyser called the Beehive and it goes off every couple of days. But you see, the, the way they know that the beehive is about to go off is that there's a smaller hole next to the beehive. And so before the beehive goes off, water just starts to come out of the smaller hole next to it. And when people see that, they know the beehive is about to go off. So they announce to people to gather around because we're about to see something amazing and spectacular. When the beehive goes off, it's a beautiful thing. Family, this is what the resurrection is like. Jesus' resurrection is like the, the hole next to the beehive that lets us know that the next resurrection is about to happen. Jesus has risen from the dead. And because Jesus has risen from the dead, we know that there is a future resurrection where those who believed in him will be raised again as well. Family, and in the meantime, in between both resurrections, it's our job to let people know that Jesus has risen again so we need to repent. If there is another resurrection coming, if we are all to be resurrected one day in the future, that changes the way we live in the here and now. If there's truly a man named Jesus who is rose again and he is king and judge and we will all be risen again and stand before him, we need to repent. 
So family, that's the main point of this passage today. God raised Jesus from the dead, so we need to repent. The resurrection is proof of Jesus' kingship. So I have three uh, points. I'm going to speed through them. Uh, we need to repent from our ignorance, repent from idolatry, and repent from our wickedness. Repent from ignorance, repent from idolatry, and repent from wickedness. Somebody say ignorance. ignorance. Let's try that again. Somebody say ignorance. ignorance. All right. Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So uh, Paul is in Athens. He, he left his people behind in the previous city. He went ahead uh, to Athens. And when he's in Athens, he's looking around the city. You can imagine he's walking around and he's just observing. And it says his spirit was provoked. Paul is getting fired up to do some ministry. How many of y'all have, have experienced that? You know, that? That's just like Paul to get fired up to do some ministry. And so but th this is why he gets fired up. You have to understand a little bit about Athens. Athens was known for its philosophical teachings and it was known for its many gods. So first, the philosophical teachings. Athens uh, was widely known. People traveled all over the world to come and learn in Athens because they had some world-class philosophers. Now, when we think about philosophers nowadays, we, we might think about that uh, you know, college um, course we took, you know, Philosophy 101, so that we can fulfill the requirement to graduate from the College of Arts and Sciences or something like that. You know, they're kind of mainly in the realm of academia. But in, in, back then, in Athens, you were kind of like a celebrity if you're a philosopher. Um, and so, man, people had all these different ideas about who God was and et cetera, et cetera. And also Athens was really into religion on top of philosophy. So there, there was one saying that said, it's easier to find a man than a God in Athens. There were so many idols, so many different gods. You had the emperor cult where people worshiped the emperor and they were devoted to him. You had household gods where people would worship different gods for different things. We had the god of the rain and then we might have a god to make us do well in school. Then we have a god to you know, grant us a kid and they would sacrifice to these gods. You had temples all around where people would go to worship these multitudes of gods. And so now you can see why when Paul was in Athens, his spirit was provoked. He saw this city that was in utter darkness. They had no knowledge of the true and living God. And so what does Paul do? Look at verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Paul starts to get busy with sharing the gospel. Christians, by the way, that should be our response when we see those type of things. We need to get busy sharing the gospel. And so Paul is reasoning with them. He's talking with them. And in verse 18, he says, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. So as he's talking with people, he's going around and he's talking with people in the synagogue. He's talking with everybody. He goes to the marketplace. That's kind of like the area where everyone was around. You can imagine just Paul is just, you know, coming up to people and striking up conversation. They thought he was crazy. They thought he was a crazy. They thought he was a babbler. They thought he was a crazy dude. Um, and so in order to understand why they thought he was crazy. See, nowadays, if you talk about Jesus in Mississippi, people would be like, oh, yeah, I believe in Jesus. Whatever. Yeah. You know, Jesus. Yeah. But back then they were like, what? So the, the, the popular philosophies of the day were Epicurean, Epicureanism and Stoicism. It says some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were there. So now Epicureanism was kind of like modern day atheists. They didn't really believe in a God. They believed that the only thing that existed was matter. They believed that all, the world was just made up of atoms. Um, so they, they kind of, if, if you play out their beliefs, there was no afterlife. 
If everything was only matter and humans had no soul, when you died, what happened? You're gone. Uh, now, th and, and there was very little purpose. If, if you were just only atoms, then it was very little uh, purpose. Um, but, but they believed that the goal of life was kind of like a, a elegant hedonism. They thought that, man, the point of life is to pursue pleasure, but it's kind of like sophisticated pleasures. Like you're supposed to meditate and, and do virtuous things, right? Um, but the Stoics, they, they were a little different. The Stoics were pantheists. They believed that all is God and all is matter. God is like in the trees, in this mic. He's kind of like the Star Wars force that kind of permeates everything and keeps things going. Um, so in this force, it determines everything regardless of your choice. And what life looked like is you're supposed to acknowledge that you're just a role pay player in, in the drama of life. And you need to recognize your role and actively play that role. Um, so this is opposite of Christianity, where Christianity believes that, yes, God controls everything, but this God is personal and that our choices really do matter within the grand, the grand uh, scheme of his plan, whereas they just believe that God wasn't personal. So now you can see why they thought Paul was crazy. He's coming in with this Christianity stuff, and they're like, bro, we don't even know what you're talking about. Like, it was to the such where he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection, and they thought those were two separate deities, uh, Jesus and, and, and uh, the resurrection. And so look at verses 19 and 21 through 21. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know therefore what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and their foreigners and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling and, and hearing something new. So now, you know, back in that day, uh, so kind of Introducing new gods and, and preaching against the gods of the day was taboo. Uh, back maybe a few centuries before that, Socrates got executed for doing the same thing. So they're, they're kind of like, okay, like this is, you know, this is weird. Let, let's, let's figure this out. So they took Paul to the Areopagus. The Areopagus was basically kind of like a council or a, a group of, of leaders of the city. But they primarily specialized in determining what new gods could be introduced into the city. Uh, on issues of morality and they judged on issues of philosophy. So this is crazy. You see Paul, this is just in, in the fashion of Paul being a missionary like he is. He enters into a city and somehow finds his way into the most influential group of people in that city and one of the most influential cities in the world. And he's sharing the gospel right there and they put him on the spot. Um, so Paul, look at what he says in verses 22 through 23. It says, so Paul standing in the midst of the Areopagus said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Paul's about to go in. Basically right here what Paul is saying, Paul is like, look, y'all got me here trying to get at me because I'm preaching some strange divinities. I walked around your city and I saw an altar to an unknown God. Y'all are crazier than I am, right? So with that altar, the story was that there was a plague about to come upon the Athens, and they said, oh, man, we're sacrificing to all our gods, and the plague hasn't gone away. So what we're going to do is put a bunch of goats on top of the hill and release them. Whenever those goats stop, we're going to set up an altar to an unknown god. It was kind of like religious insurance. They're like, man, we might have missed a god. Let's offer some extra sacrifices just in case, you know? Paul's like, y'all are crazy. Um, but so but Paul goes in, he starts saying, man, this unknown God that y'all think uh, that y'all don't know, I'm about to share this God with you. But y'all, we, we read this and we say, man, that sounds really foreign. 
But couldn't we be a little bit similar to the Athenians? That even though Christianity is kind of like the main religion down here in Jackson, Mississippi, couldn't we have some traits of the Athenians? That we kind of have like a buffet type of Christianity. That we kind of generally like, yeah, I'm cool with Christianity, but I don't really believe everything in the Bible. Like, do y'all really believe everything in the Bible? And it's almost like, I call it buffet Christianity because we go to a buffet and we put a little General Sal's chicken and then we get some fried chicken over here. And then we might put, you know, the, the, the sweet and sour sauce and we kind of get a little everything we want. And we say, this is my plate. That's what we do with religion. We say, I'm going to go over here and get a little bit of this out of Buddhism, Hinduism, Christianity, and Islam, and I'm going to throw it together, and this is my God, and he's real, and I'm going to worship him. Don't we do that? For some of us, when we're uh, really feeling like our money is looking funny, that we are all of a sudden into some prosperity gospel stuff. We're like, yeah, that, that's my thing, man. You know, man, I, that, that's who God is to me. Maybe when we're in deep sin, God all of a sudden becomes distant. It's like, you know what? I'm really kind of an atheist anyway, right? Because we don't want to really confront our sin. Some of us, when we're stretched out, stressed out, we go to Buddhism and we say, I'm just going to meditate and kind of go to my inner Zen, my inner peace. Uh, some of us, when you know, we, we, we see racial stuff going on in the country, we kind of turn Hebrew-Israelite and we're going militant, right? Uh, <laughs> some of us, when, when we see uh, all the different stuff that people say about God and it makes us feel uncomfortable, we really kind of go into ourselves and kind of do new age self-spirituality. Even though we say we're Christians, oftentimes we operate as if we're everything else. And even though we say we're Christians, oftentimes we kind of do like a functional atheism that we really don't believe there's any purpose in life. We live as if there's not really an afterlife. We live as if our decisions don't matter, and so we say, oh, whatever, God meant it to happen, it'll happen, I'm gonna just do me, right? And then we really say, is God even really different from us? God is really kind of just in me, you know, so I'm just gonna look to myself, whatever I feel like God is, that's who he is. Aren't we kind of like the Athenians a little bit? We kind of just pick and choose what we want God to be like. I kind of think God is kind of like a, a cake. That with a cake, you have all these separate ingredients. You got sugar, eggs, and flour, and all that stuff. And you can't just pick and choose what you want. You can't say, oh, I want some eggs, or oh, I just want some you know, flour, or oh, I just want some sugar. You got to mix all those things together. And when you bake it, it's a beautiful and delicious cake. Now, what happens if, if you forget the sugar? Right, you can speak back to me. It's nasty, right? <laughs> That's what it's like when we pick and choose what we want God to be like. We think it tastes good, but at the end of the day, God says, that's nasty. You weren't created for that. You weren't created for a bootleg God. You weren't created for man-made gods. When we see idols that they worshiped back then, we say, oh, we would never worship wooden things and man-made things. Whoa, let's pause and think about that. All of us have our man-made gods. And God will not be defined by who we say he is. God is not our flunky. God is not just our imaginary friend. God is God, and he comes down and condescends to us, and he lets us know who he is, and he will be worshiped as he is. God is weighty. God will not be defined. God will not be mocked by us. We need all of who God is in order to truly rest and truly be what we were created to be. Only in the true and living God will our hearts, our restless hearts find rest. Our second point is that we have to repent from idolatry. Somebody say idolatry. Um, check out verses 24 
through 25. So God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So you need to repent from idolatry by believing that God is creator. You do not create God. God creates you. See, back then they thought that they created the gods and they did. And they had to upkeep the gods. They had to repair the gods. They had to wash the idols. And they still were crazy enough to worship them. God is saying, I'm not like that. God is saying, I'm self-existence. No one created me. I, have, I had no beginning and I have no end. Uh, God created us. God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. God's like, since I created everything, I'm not contained in it. I can be anywhere I want. Uh, and we are the ones who are limited. God is self-sufficient. He's like, I don't need anything. And guess what? God does not need us, despite how, what we may think. God says you need him. We repent from idolatry by believing he's sovereign. Look at verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. There is a God and he is in control of history. Every nation, every boundary, every migration, everything God has orchestrated and he's orchestrated it for this. Look at verses 27 through 28, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. This God who is creator and sovereign, he is also personal. He says so that we might seek him and feel for him. Uh, I love the NASB's translation. It says, if perhaps we might grope for him and find him. It says something like that. It brings out the reality that we as humans, we were created by God. We, we, it says we are his offspring. In some sense, we are all children of God, even though, you know, covenantally, you know, we know that Christians are children of God and we have all the rights and privileges of sons of God. But speaking generally, we all were created by God. And so that's why it calls us his offspring. And so we see that, you know, it's almost like an image of a little child in a room feeling around. And they're feeling on the furniture and they're looking for the light switch and they're trying to find their parents, but they can't because they're children and because they can't see. That's a picture of what it's like for us to be in this world and to look for God. We know that we were created to find him and to seek him. We were made in his image. So we were made to worship him. Yet our hearts are dark and we are blinded by sin and we cannot find him. Family, isn't this what it's like in, in, in Athens? Isn't that what it's like in Athens? They, they were created to find God and they were made in his image, which is why they had so many gods. That's why they had so many different philosophies. Yet they could not find him. And Paul is putting them on. He's telling them this is who God is. Verse 29, being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. Family, don't we do this? I, I think we actually create idols and we try and contain God and put him in a box because it's a humbling thing to actually acknowledge that God is God. Have you ever thought about that? What it's truly like to be in the presence of the living God? C.S. Lewis, I'm going to butcher it because I'm doing it off, of, uh, off the top of my head. But C.S. Lewis had a quote that's something like this. Uh, if you are eaten up with pride in an arrogant person, that shows that you really are truly, that you truly have not been in the presence of God. 
The true marker of someone who is in the presence of God is someone who feels like a small and humble thing. Family, God is self-existent, meaning he did not create himself. God is a big God. It, it is a threatening thing to us when we realize that God is mighty and that he's big and he's majestic. And God is bigger than just to solve our little problems. God is not our genie in a bottle. God is not our slave or our servant. Oftentimes we think of God as someone who should just do our every whim and should make us feel good. And then we're going to go about our lives as if he doesn't exist. No, God is here and God is present. Have you ever just thought about the reality? We throw around the word God enough, but have you realized how weighty that word is? To say the word God and to actually acknowledge that you live in the same world as he, to even acknowledge that you live in his world and you're breathing his air. God does not need us. It's scary to live in a world with a person who has really no reason outside of himself to keep us here. We're on his property. It makes us feel good to think that, you know, he's like a human being and he keeps us around and we have some type of security because of his need for us. But he doesn't. What about his sovereignty that he's king? A lot of us don't want to worship God. You know why? Because we think we're king, that we want to be the ruler of our own lives. We say, God, you know what? You're really not that smart. You're really not that loving. and You're really not that powerful. So if you can stay out of my life, I'm going to run my own thing and I'm going to do my own thing and we'll be good. If you can just come and help me out when I need you, that'd be fantastic. We don't realize that if God created the world, he must know how to live in it. And if he created us for him, then maybe we should live for him. Maybe we'll find some satisfaction and joy in our empty lives. But see, all of these things sound weighty and threatening, and I want it to. But this is why it's a beautiful thing to be a Christian, to be in Christ, because, you know, all of this power, all of this rawness, all of who God is, is for you. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love him, to those he has called according to his purpose. The fact that God is personal and caring, it doesn't mean anything if he's not powerful. You just have a God who has some good intentions but can't do nothing with them. The fact that God is personal and caring doesn't mean anything if he is dependent on somebody else. So what happens if the person you're dependent on God is against me? What you going to do? Right. This God says, I'm perfectly qualified to provide your every need and to love you fiercely and ferociously. And to walk with you and support you and sustain you because I am God. And when we ever strip God from his godhood, we strip him from everything that we say that we love about him. The last thing is we must repent from our wickedness. Look at verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. So what this doesn't mean is it doesn't mean like God has given you a pass for sin, but now he's really counting sin when he says he's overlooked the times past. What he's saying is, is God is like, basically, you, you remember the days of Noah when God sent a flood on the earth and wiped out uh, everything? God really should do that every year. But God is so gracious and so good that he promised not to do it again by a flood. God is so gracious that he has given me, Cyril, with my jacked up self, he has given me and all of us time to repent. He doesn't want to see us perish. 
He sees us groping in the darkness and he wants us to find him. He says God has overlooked times past, but he says now he's announcing to everybody. He's making it plain. He's making it clear. There are no excuses. Everybody needs to turn and repent. We need to change our ways and submit to the living and true God. In verse 31, because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. If you think it's crazy that God is going to judge the world, he's giving you proof. He's giving you proof. So now at this point, when Paul is talking to the Areopagus, he's getting crazier and crazier. So he's talking about a God. He's talking about, you know, these the God who created the world and he's, and he's talking about all these things. They're like, okay, okay, okay. And then Paul starts to talk about, and now a human being will judge everybody who has ever lived. And this person was risen from the dead. And now they're like, like we, we gave this guy a chance, but now he's really getting crazy. Right. They start, you can imagine they start busting out laughing. Just think he's, he's nuts. But, and, and so you like, have you ever thought about it? See, we as Christians, we've been around Christianese, like our Christian lingo so often we don't realize how crazy the claims we make are to non-Christians. What if I came up and told you, hey, I was following this dude and, you know, he was he was a, a, a religious teacher and he did some pretty crazy stuff like he could walk on water. And then but he, man, he died. But guess what? He rose again. If I told you there's a human being who rose again and I told you I know him. What do you think about me? You're like you. You finna call Janelle and be like, Janelle. So it was getting a little crazy, like, you know. Make sure he's taking his, you know, make sure he's, he's, he, he, he's, he's doing all right. You know what I'm saying? Um, that's what it's like when Paul walked up to them. They were like, man, this dude is, is, is not making sense. So now, check it out. What would a person have to be and what kind of qualities would a person have to have in order to make you believe that he could judge the world? Right? Wouldn't this person have to be completely righteous? Because I'm not about to be judged by somebody who sinned too. I'm not about to stand at his throne. Wouldn't this person have to know any and everything? I'm not about to be judged by a person who I think could get it wrong. Wouldn't this person kind of have to be a little more than a human? Maybe just a little bit? If every single human being who's ever lived is going to stand before another human being, this person's got to be more than a human being. I'm just saying. This person kind of has to be God, right? And this person has to have done some things to make me believe that he really is judge. This kind of person would have to do something so crazy as to smack death in the face and push it aside, right? Now, have, have y'all seen Beauty and the Beast? Who's seen Beauty and the Beast? All right, so if, if y'all know the story, it's a story about, uh, you know, this prince who he's really into, into himself. He's, he, he's a, a beautiful guy, I guess, and, you know, he has his palace and he's rich, and he invites all these people to his uh, palace. He invites all these other beautiful people, the rich and famous, and they're having a party. And so this, as the story goes, there's this, what, what the story calls an ugly old hag, basically. Like, I know that's not politically correct, but that's kind of how the story goes. And, you know, she's wearing, like, you know, like a hood and, you know, she's going in and she offers him a rose. She's saying, man, it's cold outside. Can I have some uh, refuge um, from, from the cold? And he was like, no, you know, get out of here because, because she, she was hideous as the story goes. And so she warns him. She says, beauty is not on the outside. Beauty is in the inside. And he still rejects her. 
And so what she does, she transforms into like a beautiful, like mystical spirit type thing. And she reveals who she truly is. And they're all scared. They're like, whoa. And he's, he's asking for forgiveness. He's like, please, please, please forgive us. She says, no, it's too late. I'm going to put a curse over this whole castle. And the only way that you will be uh, uh, exempt from the curse is if you truly learn what it is to love and be loved before the last petal falls down. Y'all, this is, I, I know that's a fairy tale and, and that's a false story, but this is kind of what it was like with Jesus. When Jesus lived on the earth, there was nothing about his form to attract us to him. He was just a, what seemed like a normal guy. He was a son of Joseph, the son of Mary. Oh, and, and, and that, that carpenter's son, he walked around and he, and he taught people. He had, a, he had a, a group of 12 scraggly disciples who followed him and, and, and they went around and they uh, you didn't have a, a place to lay their head. And eventually he was captured. And so you imagine his disciples, they placed all their trust in him. Jesus is like, I'm the king. I'm the Messiah. And so they're like, cool, we're really about to take over. We're about to take up our weapons. We're about to fight Rome. And we're about to conquer right on beside of Jesus. So you can imagine these guys who place all their trust in Jesus, put all their stakes in Jesus, thinking they're about to go to war and Jesus is about to win the day. And Jesus gets captured. They, 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 you know, like in the movies, they put a bag over his head. They probably didn't. But like, that's what I like to imagine it as. Like, it was like that type of thing. They took him, they beat him, they stripped him naked, they hung him naked on a cross, and he died a death for the most lowly of people. And so you can imagine, that's why Peter denied Jesus three times. That's why his disciples scattered. They were like, whoa, 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 this is not in the plan. They had an idea of Jesus. They, had so, they probably had so many doubts. They're like, was Jesus really who he said he was? But this is the thing. They didn't know who they were messing with. When Jesus rose again, that's when they truly saw who they were messing with. Imagine, this is a horrible thing to think about, but imagine if you murdered somebody like they murdered Jesus, and you thought you were going to get away with it. And so you're going on about your life confident that no one's going to find out. And one day, you wake up in the middle of the night, and you see the dude you murdered standing above your bed. What would that feel like? <laughs> You'd be like, my bad, bro. I was kidding. I was playing. My fault. Right? You would be scared because obviously that dude is more than just a dude if he got up out of the grave. That's what it felt like for the people in Jerusalem at the time. They said, whoa, this guy must have been the son of God. He wasn't playing when he said he was, yes, the son of man. He was a human, yet at the same time, he was fully God. That's what Paul calls the resurrection. He calls it proof that this man will judge everyone. And so we see in verse 32, now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, but others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with him. So right here, Paul starts talking about the resurrection and they think he's crazy. They start laughing at him. Y'all. Could that be some of us in here today? And when we hear about a man about to judge the world, we think it sounds dumb. And if you're outside of Christ, if you're non-Christian, I believe that if we're preaching it right, it should sound dumb. The Bible says that God purposely made the gospel foolishness so that his foolishness can be wiser than the wisdom of men. God has meant for it to sound foolish. But the reality is, you can't explain Christianity. 
You can't explain a worldwide Jesus movement. You can't explain the fact that these 120 disciples who we left behind would want to die for him unless it was actually true that he rose from the dead. Who would want to die for a lie? If I made up a religion, if someone tried to kill me, I'd be like, whoa, I made it up. Like, y'all, we're good here, right? Something had to happen at that tomb in order for there to even be such thing as Christianity, for us to even sit here and worship him. The reality is that Jesus rose from the dead. And if he has risen from the dead, which he has, we all have to deal with him. Non-Christian, you have business to do with Jesus. If this man has risen from the dead, then you have to come to grips with the fact that this person could actually be who he said he was. He's the judge of the world. He's God. God has placed, God the Father has placed his stamp of approval on God the Son. And I have to reckon with who this Jesus person really is. So non-Christian, we are so glad you are here. We hope that you will come back and you will continue, just like Dionysius the Areopagite and Damaris, to follow, to so to speak, follow Paul. That, that you wouldn't just laugh. That you say, okay, let me explore this. And our prayer is that you would hang out with us. You would continue to visit us on Sundays. You would come to our hangouts and our social gatherings. And that you would ask good questions and that you would give Christians the benefit of the doubt. And that our prayer is that as we love you and as we hang out with you and as you love us and hang out with us, that you will come to believe in the same God we believe. Because we realize that outside of him, there is no salvation. And outside of him, there is no rest, no joy, no satisfaction. And because you were made to know him and to worship him. And Christian, today, the reality of the resurrection is, if you've kind of lived a cruise control Christianity, You've kind of just been coasting it. You said, ah, whatever, like, you know, I go to church because it's kind of like what my, what my grandparents did and that's kind of the thing to do. And I like singing songs and I like hanging around nice people. The resurrection calls you into something deeper than cruise control Christianity. If Jesus rose from the dead, that means he's king. And that means you're one of his servants, whether you realize it or not. Either you can bow down now or you could bow down later before his throne when you truly see him in all his glory. So family, this big God, he has created you for himself. God doesn't want to share you with anybody. God wants you all to himself, and it's because he loves you. That's why he sent his son to die and rise again. Because he saw us in our sin and misery, and he didn't want to leave us there. He wanted to redeem us for his own self, for his own glory and for our own joy. So family, God raised Jesus from the dead. So we should repent, repent from our ignorance, repent from our idolatry and repent from our wickedness. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for this time. Lord, I pray that you would help us to live out this reality that we would believe you. Those of us here who might not have reckoned with the reality of the resurrection, that we, would, that we would really wrestle with it. We would really come to grips with the fact that God, you have offered proof 
that your son Jesus is king and God and is worthy of our worship and is worthy of our faith. God, I pray for conversions like Dionysius and Damaris. I pray that as we learn more about you, Jesus, we would be converted and we pray that those of us who might be Christians and we might need an extra boost, Lord, I pray that the reality of your resurrection will make us see that you are king and that you're not only teddy bear cultural Jesus, even though, Jesus, you are so widespread that you are a cultural phenomenon and you do love us so much that oftentimes you do make us feel good as a teddy bear. But Jesus, you are also our king. You are also God. Help us to worship you accordingly. We love you. Amen.